Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Saroy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for subscribing to this show if you are. If not, you can find the show available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, its home base Podbean, and as of recently, Amazon. That's right. Amazon now holds podcasts and Excelsior Journeys is one of them. I'm so thrilled to be a part of that library. I'm so thrilled to see the potential that this show has to grow. And really, it's, it's all on you guys. I need shares, I need likes, I need um, reviews, especially on Apple. Uh, please, the more you spread the word, the more this show grows, the more attention that all of my guests get. And that is something I, that I've wanted for this show all along. Uh, when I first came up with the show just a couple of years ago, it, was, it came about by looking through my list of Facebook friends and realizing, wow, I know a lot of talented people. They need to get on podcasts. They need to get their names out there. They need to spread their awareness because they're all doing so much good. And then a few months later, that's when I realized they need to be on my show and get, to, um, get, their, work, get their stories out there. So... Um, that is where we are today. We are nearing episode 60 of this show, and it's, I'm noticing a nice slow growth in, in listenership. I really, really appreciate all of the, all the good vibes that I've gotten, all the, the feedback that I've gotten from all of you listeners really means the world to me. And um, speaking of good, uh, good feedback, during the time when I was working on my first book, Excelsior, my... Uh, my story editor, who is still my story editor, Jerry Engeller, uh, told me that I have a very cinematic type of style to my writing, that uh, she feels that by reading it, she can see what plays out on the big screen. And that's something I really appreciated. And I told her that a big reason why, I, why my writing is like that is because I spent a lot of years growing up reading the movie tie-in novelizations. And that was something that I made a point to get as much as possible. I had so much fun reading them. It's basically just a way of reliving the movie that I got to see. And in a lot of cases, those novelizations wind up being better than the movie itself. Um, and it's something that I've really been, uh, really grasped onto and really run with. Um, now, flash forward uh, several years later and all of a sudden, I find myself the vice president and conference chair of the Missouri Writers Guild. And I just want to, want to express this to all of, all of you out there. Uh, whenever you tell your guild president that if there's anything you can do to help, please let you know, let you know. Uh, be specific about that because I, made, I went ahead and said that to our president of the Missouri Writers Guild and about a few weeks later, I got the congratulations, Mr. VP email. So keep that in mind, be specific. But being the conference chair 
presented a really great challenge to me because that meant that I got to basically build the 2017 Missouri Writers Guild Conference however I saw fit. And a big thing that I was really in, interested in sticking my teeth into was picking the faculty. And once I started doing that, I knew that one person that I was definitely going to be bringing on to the faculty is not only, uh, not only someone who I truly respect as a writer, uh, but also someone who can, um, that I knew was going to teach some, real, some really good breakout sessions and also be a great keynote speaker. And that's who we have as our guest this week. Uh, Tim Wagoner is a multi-award winning author who not only, uh, who not only excels in, in horror and thrillers, but is also um, a, ver a, a very big name in movie tie-in novelizations. Um, I am really thrilled to finally have the opportunity to sit down with him and get to know his Excelsior journey as an, as an author. And it's, uh, it's my privilege to introduce to you, Tim Wagoner. Tim, how are you, sir? I'm all right. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, from, from what I understand, uh, I actually got a notice from Amazon this morning that, uh, that, that the latest, latest project from Tim Wagoner is from a, uh, is a, is a uh, book called Wendigo Tales. Now, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's um, a collection of novellas by different writers, and they're all set in uh, the date, the Deadlands uh, game scenario, which is kind of um, sort of like a steampunk western kind of thing with with sorcery in it. And they have like several different versions of the game, like one set in the old west, one set. Uh, off-planet in the future, another one set like in an apocalyptic scenario, but they all have the feeling of a Western. Awesome. And uh, really yeah, awesome. I was just approached by uh, the editor and asked to do one. And I got to uh, basically write a Western, a uh, weird Western, you know, set in the, an apocalyptic uh, setting. And it was a lot of fun to write. That's so cool. That is so cool. And that sort of, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how like that, uh, how that, genre of you know that genre western genre can find its way into so many different elements especially like uh science fiction i know that um john carpenter made a point to say that escape from new york is a western more than anything right um so so let's go ahead and go to um now that we know that that's that that's coming out that's coming out in december correct yeah i believe so awesome okay so um, so let's go back to what I like to call the lightning bolt moment, which is that moment in a in any creative person's life when they suddenly realize that what they're watching, what they're experiencing, what they're reading, what they're listening to, that is what they want to do. That is the the life they want to live, and that is the direction they want to go in. What was that moment for you? Yeah, you know, I've been reading and. Uh watching stories and just in love with story forever. But like a, a lot of creative kids, I was into everything. You know, I was into music. I was into uh, the drama club in high school. I was into drawing. Um, I had planned when I was in high school, I was thinking about, you know, being a comic book artist. And so I created my own comic book and wrote it just starring me and my friends as superheroes just to have something to draw. And yeah. they all talked about how horrible my, my art was, but they liked the stories. But so I was angry because it's like, I didn't want to be a writer. But then one day I was reading, um, it was an old Marvel black and white magazine 
uh, mm -hmm. featuring Dracula. It's called Dracula Lives. Same name as the comic, but it was a, you know, more adult. And in the right. back of it, they had an interview with Stephen King. And uh, it was probably right after The Shining came out. So, you know, he wasn't super famous yet, just working that way. And yeah. as I was reading the article, it was the first time that it clicked for me that people actually wrote books. You know, the name was on it. I was kind of aware, but it was, I sort of connected to the idea that people like me or like anybody yeah. could write a book. And, you know, it was, it was like this epiphany. And I was reading it in my bedroom, you know, and I, I stopped the, I don't know if I finished the article, but whatever, I stopped. Mm -hmm. I walked down the hallway into the family room my mom was, and I said, you know, I, I think I'd like to be a writer. And without missing a bit, she said, or a beat, she said, you know, I think you'd be a good one. And that was the moment that, that, you know, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I still have an issue that, that I can turn my head and look at it right here. It's in my office with, with some other books wow. on a shelf here. Yeah. So that was, I mean, it definitely did have that one, you know, like you say, lightning bolt moment. Yeah. And, and what a, what a great two for one, because you not only had the lightning bolt moment, then, but then you also knew that you had a support system right there. You know, right. somebody that's already saying, I think you would be good at this. And yeah, you know, yeah it was nice. Yeah. Rarity. It is. I mean, my parents are both, you know, from blue collar backgrounds, neither one, other than my dad saying that, you know, when I went to college, it might be good to have something to fall back on for a while. <laughs> to, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't starve, but that was it. I mean, they were very supportive of, of anything I wanted to do. And yeah, you know, after being a, a, a teacher for several decades, I know that that's not as common as you would hope it would be. So yeah, I was pretty lucky that way. That's that's really cool. So you had that moment, you had that epiphany, and um, what was the, do you remember that first story that you felt like I have to write this down? Well, that's a good question. It actually, I, it might have happened around the same time, maybe a little earlier. Mm -hmm. I was in a creative writing class at high school, and I was shocked we even had one. Our high school was so small. You know, I grew up yeah. in a small southwestern Ohio town, farm town, and mm -hmm. in the class I had written I'd read a I'd read a um, horror magazine comic magazine either creepy or eerie that back in the day and one of the stories was about the the last Christmas elf um, the, you know, Santa was dead all the elves were dead and he's still trying to you know pass out presents except it was like this sort of EC revenge fantasy kind of story nice you know the present he brings is like he kills like an abusive uncle that these kids have oh wow and then leaves and I was like what a what a waste of an idea mm -hmm. that you have this this elf who's still trying to carry on its legacy all by himself. So, you know, I took that as inspiration. I don't know if you can call that theft or not, because <laughs> I took the idea of the last Christmas elf. Yeah. But I was I was 15 or 16. Give me a break. So I wrote the story and I, I forget what the title was of the original, but I called mine the last Christmas elf. Yeah. And I wrote it and it was the first time that I really had written a story where I really tried to get into the characters and tried to get into the themes and, you know, beyond just a surfacey type story. And, yeah. uh, you know, the teacher read it out loud in class. She, she didn't, um, she didn't say who, who it was because she didn't want to like put anybody on the spot. You know, we're all teenagers. Right. And I was too embarrassed to say it was me. Uh, but you know, that, uh, I was really proud that she liked it. And then I got to be writer of the month at my school and I didn't even know we had that. And I was like, Wow, wow, this is pretty cool. And then some small local paper, like a weekly kind of paper that the kind of ones you pick up free that have a lot of ads in it. Yeah. And uh, they they in uh, called me to do an interview, and I was like, wow. Oh wow, I can't believe this. So I, I put on my three piece suit to go to this reporter's house because <laughs> I, I didn't know how you know people were supposed to dress for an interview. Yeah. You know, and I tried to sound really really smart during my interview and everything. And then they published the story in the paper too. So 
I guess it counts as my very first pub professional publication. That's great. And and that was, you said like 16, 17 years old or so? Yeah, it was around the same time as I read that article, maybe a little bit early. It was, you know, it was something that it, it was, I hadn't really ha uh, come up with the idea of having identity of, as a writer and dedicating myself to it yet. Right. Um, in some ways, you know, there's a, there's a plus to that too. You know, I, I teach college writing and I, most of what I teach, even though I do creative writing, most of what I teach is freshman composition. And one of the things I, I notice is that, you know, they write without any kind of self-consciousness. They're not trying to be the you know, <laughs> writers for a career, the greatest writer. Because of that, you know, a lot of good stuff comes out when you're lax, when you're not as worried about, you know, the final product or where the final product's going to go. I, yeah, I remember uh, William Goldman was t was telling that story about how he would, um, I think it was either in high school or college or something, how he was so like dedicated to, you know, wanting to be a writer. And yet he always got the worst grades in creative writing while the people that would just, you know, just throw one, throw a page out there would wind up getting an A. Just like, right. like you said, they felt relaxed. They weren't focused on that. And it's funny because like, it's amazing how like we all, you know, like us, you know, writers, it's always such like it's always such a grind, you know, for for us because like we want everything to to work. But you know that that key of giving yourself permission to relax that that's something a lot of writers need to need to remember these days, especially with National Novel Writing Month around the corner. It's true. You know, I think eventually, if you keep going, you get there. You know, I, I liken it to learning how to play piano when you're really concentrating on the scales and everything. And yeah. eventually, you know, once you've, 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 you know, internalized all these basic skills, you kind of move past them and they happen automatically while you're doing other stuff. Uh, yeah. But I think getting to that point, you know, it, it, it can be hard, especially when you get so much contradictory advice on the internet from people about what you should do and what your attitude should be and how should you approach work and what makes a good story. And it just makes you so self-conscious. It's like I tell students, you know, you can walk just fine until somebody tells you get up and demonstrate how you walk for us, like in the classroom. <laughs> and suddenly you're so self-conscious, you're going to start tripping and all kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's right. Wow. That's, that's something I never really thought about. Um, so you, so you have that moment, you have the, you have the story, you have, uh, some newspaper attention. So you're already basically kind of being validated as a writer, um, at such a young age. Um, did, what was college like after, after graduating? Well, for college, I, I had decided to, to become an acting major since I was you know, in drama club. Yeah. I thought about being a musician before that. I played trumpet in the band, but I like herniated a muscle in my throat. It didn't hurt, but it just, I don't know if you've ever seen the old trumpet player, Dizzy Gillespie. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Cause he blows up like a frog when his right. throat does. And that's what happened to me, but only on one side. And I couldn't make the, the pressure necessary to hit high notes anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, fine. I guess, you know, I, I love being in the play, so I'll try this. Yeah. But I got to college on my first day, the very, literally the first day of acting class, mm -hmm. the professor passed out these index cards and he said, I want you to write down three things, an actor that you think you're like, an actor other people have told you you like, and why you want to be an actor. And, you know, we're all 18, most of us. I mean, there might be a couple older people there, but most of us were 18. Yeah. We were all terrified because it's our first day of college. And so we're looking at each other like, what, what does he want us to put down? 
So I had no clue what to put down. Um, there was one girl in band who used to call me Hawkeye, like the, the actor from Mash or the character yeah, from Mash. Alan Alda. Yeah. So, yeah, so I didn't think I was like Alan Alda at all, but I'm like, fine, I'll just put dead down for both of the first two. <laughs> and I look at that third one, why do I want to be an actor? And I'm trying to psych out the professor and think about, you know, what does he want? And I thought, okay, he's going to tell me, he's going to tell us all that there, any reason you want to be an actor is a good reason. So I'm just put down because I enjoy it. And then he collected all the index cards and he says, it doesn't matter what you put down for one and two. There's only one right answer to number three. <laughs> Everybody just we went pale because we knew we got it wrong. And he said, the only reason to be an actor is because you have to be. Because he said the, the, the odds of success, the kind of life, you know, an everyday ordinary working actor lives is pretty rough. Yeah. And the only way that you're going to get through that is because this is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And I immediately knew that that's not how I felt about yeah. it. And so I changed my major that, that first wow. week to, yeah, I changed it to theater education because I had theater and English was like your secondary teaching field. Mm -hmm. And I'd always enjoyed watching teachers teach more than what they were teaching when I was in school. Right. So I figured between those three career paths at the end of four years, maybe I'd figure something <laughs> out. But what I did was I took that, you know, that, that last question that he asked and I turned it around. I asked mm -hmm. myself, what is the one thing that you have to do? And I realized that I've been telling stories all my life. It was the only thing that mattered to me. In fact, it was so natural to me. It didn't occur to me to focus on it as a career. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that little exercise, that was another kind of, I don't know if you call it a lightning moment exactly, but it, it kind of was where it just, you know, I turned that around and it helped me focus. And so from that moment, regardless of what else I was going to do, like for a day job or anything, I decided that that's what I wanted to devote my life to was writing. Wow. Nice. And, I, it's, it's amazing just like how parallel, you know, like our journeys have been, because I mean, obviously you're much more, you know, successful as, as a, as an author and, you know, definitely as a, you know, as a teacher and everything, I got my master's, you know, like in communication and it was from the education department. I studied drama, you know, in high school and became an acting major in college. So that's, it's it kind of, I kind of understand how, you know, like our paths eventually like found our way to each other here. Um, so you change the, so you go ahead and change the major in college and were you able to really kind of, you know, really kind of sink your teeth into writing? Were you able to take like other writing classes or anything during the time when you were in college to kind of hone your craft? Yeah, yeah the, because English was a secondary field, teaching field, I had, right. you know, so many English credits that I had to do. So I was able to take a couple creative writing classes. And then, you know, once I decided to, I wanted to, to teach writing as well as write it, you know, I went to grad school and, uh, you know, got my master's in, it's, it's a MA in literature, but with a creative writing concentration. And I got to take more creative writing classes too. Uh, so yeah, that, and that was, it was really good to, to hear other people uh, you know, read the writing, because we usually read it out loud in those classes, mm -hmm. and then to talk about their writing process and see all the different ways they did things, and then start making connections with other writers in school. Uh, I, I got a job working at the the writing center oh, at my school. Awesome. And uh, yeah, and it was, that was really formative for me, being able to work with people one-on-one -on -one and, you know, try to figure out what makes this work, what doesn't make this work, how can I help them make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it plugs me into both, you know, my being a writer and a teacher. It was a wonderful experience. That's that's, that's fantastic. That's so cool. Uh, so after getting all of this type of education, after go, um, going through all of college, getting to 
work with the writing center and everything. What can you tell us a little bit about that first story that you knew like this is going, this is actually going to happen. I am going to write this out and I'm going to put it out there into the world. Um, I'm not sure what you mean. You mean the one that I thought was just going to be like the, the very first one I sent out for submission or do you mean the first one that I thought was like really good or? Uh, the first one for submission. The first one that you felt like you, you were really, you know, taking this go, going okay. all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it was probably when I was 18 or 19, my first year of college, um, I decided that, uh, but at this point, my my dad had brought home a copy of Writer's Digest to me because I didn't even know it existed. There's no internet back then to look things up. So right. um, just because people don't know me, I'm 56. So when I'm talking, when I was 18, it was a while ago. Yeah. And it, it, so I had learned about, you know, you do submit your stories. I started to learn some stuff about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was no way to look up, you know, addresses a publisher. So I went to a bookstore and, you know, I, I didn't have the money to buy a, a copy of a magazine, but I took a little notepad with me and I wrote down the address for, for Asimov science fiction magazine. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah. And I went home and I just wrote the story. And one of the things that I've read about, about writers or creative people in general is that in, in your like between like 1830, whatever, in your twenties, you just, you just do stuff, you know, you don't, you're not as worried about it or self-conscious. So I wasn't worried about whether my story was good. I just wrote it and I liked it. So I wrote this weird comical story. Um, It was about um, uh, a warrior like Conan, it was a parody, who was sick of being a warrior. And so he went to like this office of like archetype management and wanted to be reassigned (laughs) to to a different, you know, a different scenario or whatever. And they tried to make him an insurance salesman or whatever. And, you know, no matter what he did, he just killed people. And then at the end, they found him a post-apocalyptic world to be in. He was perfectly happy because he was basically the same character. And so, you know, I sent this thing off to Asimov and what I got back was a postcard because I didn't know back then you were supposed to send a self-addressed stamped envelope to get your manuscript back. So I got a little rejection that just said, if you want your manuscript back, please send us this envelope. And I was too embarrassed to send it in, but I was super proud that I made the the whole circle, you know, the whole cycle. I'd gone from thinking of something to creating it, to sending it out to somebody else reading it then replying to me. Yeah. So even if they didn't, you know, accept it, to me, that was like the first time that I had, I had done like that, that professional cycle. Yeah. So I still got that postcard somewhere here in the office. I had it framed for a long time, like a lot of people do with their first rejection, but eventually I took it down. That's, yeah, I, I don't remember what, what happened with mine. Like I've, I've moved from you know, like so many different places and everything. I'm sure like those, those rejection letters are long gone. Um, well, what was that? Uh, what was the first one that really, that actually like got some, um, that got accepted somewhere? Um, well, probably the, the first one was, uh, when I was, I guess, junior, maybe in college, I was in a creative writing class with, um, a grad student who was the editor of the college literary magazine. So this, this was my first networking. I didn't even know people did this kind of thing. You know, I read the story in class. He really liked it. So I just asked him in the hallway, uh, you know, after class, is this the sort of thing you might like to publish in your magazine? He's like, sure, send it on over. Nice. And so it got published. Yeah. And it was, uh, and eventually the next year I, I interviewed to become the editor of the literary magazine because I thought even just a short stint behind uh, the desk as an editor would really help me out as a writer, give me a lot right. better idea, you know, what it's like. So, but that, that would have been the first one that I would consider, you know, something that I, I, I guess submitted, you know, I, I mean, I did it through an informal way, but they right. got published. 
Nice. So how many short stories were you working on before you finally decided you were going to try like either a novella or a full on full length novel? Oh, maybe not too many because I finished my first novel when I was 19. Wow. And yeah, it was just a a fun fantasy adventure. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was really back then I was uh, I read all kinds of things, but I was really enamored with Piers Anthony's humorous fantasy Mm. stories. So I wrote something kind of similar, just in a similar vein. And I sent it to Delray Books because this is way back when you didn't have to have an agent to submit to even the big houses. Um, They were, yeah, oh yeah. And they responded to me in two months, which, yeah, you can't, I try to tell people these stories now and they're like, you're kidding me. (laughs) Oh yeah. And I, I I sent my manuscript in an old like box that a shirt came in from a department store. And this was back like dot matrix printer yeah. days. So I tore off all the little all the strips along yeah. the edges and you got his packing yeah. material. Yep. I didn't, I, the old word processing programs couldn't do like page numbers. So I put the page numbers in by hand with, you know, with a pen and I, I didn't know you were supposed to send consecutive chapters. So I picked three at random that I thought were good. <laughs> and they still sent me back a letter, you know, it wasn't long, but they sent me back a letter with feedback. Wow. Um, so, yeah, and so that thing, you know, I had learned enough by reading articles in Writer's Digest and such that, that a lot of people, you know, their first novels don't get published or their third or their fourth or whatever, yeah. you know, you're just learning through those. And I was already in the middle of doing something else by then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I still have the manuscript around here somewhere, and but it's not something that I ever want to, <laughs> I think I posted the first chapter somewhere, yeah. uh, maybe my blog or something once, or first few, first few paragraphs so people could see it, but um it is interesting to go back and look at those things and sometimes, you know, get an idea that you can see what was in there that you built on that even at the time you might not have been aware that, Oh yeah, there was some, there was some decent stuff in there that, that, that like you can see the seeds where your later stuff grew out of. So do you ever think about kind of like going back, knowing what you know now and just kind of, you know, taking that concept and just kind of ripping it apart and trying and trying it in a different way? No, most of the concepts with my early novels weren't anything I would want to revisit. I did, I did revisit that uh, very first story I sent out, yeah. uh, about the barbarian. Yeah, I changed it to a, 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 a the character to be a woman, to, just to, to because it was for an anthology that was. Um, no, actually, I guess it didn't need to be a woman. I think it was just called Warrior Fantastic or something. I forget what it was. It was yeah. a theme anthology from Daw, and I just thought this idea were good, and so I rewrote it uh completely and i had different she still had the same problems where she was violent no matter what but i changed the scenarios one of my favorite parts was i i put her in a 1950s type sitcom and i wrote it as the script in there and the the laugh track was driving her insane she couldn't think why people were laughing at her and and, uh or the the audience actually i think it was a live audience and she jumped out to attack them and like slaughtered like 50 people or something in the audience fantastic what, yeah. so did that get that got published right yeah yeah so that's the i've only that's the only story that i've ever rewritten like that that uh that ever got published only concept where can we get that because i oh, I, I know i want to read it so you, yeah i'll send you i'll send you a copy i think it's in um i think it's in a, a book called warrior fantastic i think it's an older book okay awesome awesome warrior fantastic people definitely you know that sounds like a fa- uh, fabulous read. So, yeah, and, you I, know, I'm, people, they, they want to go to my website. It's just timwinder.com. I got a contact tab. If they email me, I'll send it to them. They just want to read it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so, so was, um, what was the, what was that one that really kind of like was able to break through and, you know, like uh, the, 
what what uh, novel was able to really break through after all of this? Well, that's a good question. Um, probably, I probably the I don't know if it was the first one I had published, but um, pretty close to it. Uh, I wrote a book called The Harmony Society. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's still available because uh, it's out now from a, a different press, but yeah. you can still find it. Um, but it was the first one that I wrote where I took, I was having some success with short stories of the kind of horror that in general I kind of write now, the sort of like surreal, psychological, nightmare type horror. And I wanted to try it in novel form. And it wasn't easy. I couldn't quite figure out how to wrap my brain around how to write a novel like that. Mm. Um, I'd read a couple books, one from Tom Piccarelli and one from Douglas Clegg. And I kind of saw how they did similar stuff. And I was like, it just clicked in my head. I got a feeling like I could approach this. So I wrote this book. Um, I had an agent at the time. I got the agent for a fantasy novel that I'd written that he was never able to sell. Right. But I sent him this. And um, at the time, the, the game company, White Wolf, which is still around, they had started a, a line of original fiction. Oh, wow. And yeah, they it didn't last real long, but they had it. And so he submitted it to them. They loved it. They offered a contract. I was super thrilled because, you know, I had, I had written a, a novel completely, you know, of my own, completely from the heart, yeah. uh, no yeah. consideration for market. And then they pulled out of the deal at the last minute, oh. just saying they were no longer comfortable with the book. And I never knew why, maybe just because in general sales weren't good for their original fiction. Who knows? Right. Um, they wanted to focus on the game line more. I asked my agent, he said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he said, it's just, it's just a no, you just move on to the next thing. Yeah. And eventually I found a small press to bring it out. And um, if not, you know, the, the, it was a real blow to have after all that time, because it might've been 10 years maybe into like when I first started to seriously. So it might be my late twenties. Um, and it was a real blow to happen. And then uh, I'm, I'm friends with uh, Gary A. Bronbeck, this wonderful, wonderful writer. Mm -hmm. And, I was commiserating with over the phone about it. And he said, you're so lucky. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, the worst thing that could happen to you as a writer has already happened. He said, you get past this and you're, <laughs> you're going to be fine mm -hmm. for anything else that may occur. Yeah. And he was, you know, it, it, that really helped me look at it in a different way that, uh, that, that it was an advantage to have something like that occur and to keep on going. And, uh, you know, I'm still proud of the book. Um, it is in a lot of ways, the basis for sort of a very loose kind of informal mythos that I thread through a lot of my horror fiction. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I don't make a big deal about it. But, um, yeah, I have a book coming out from flame tree press in uh, March called uh, your turn to suffer. And one of the elements from the harmony society plays a big role in that, in that book. So, you know, I, I it, it's helped kind of not only form, you know, how I write my own original horror novels, but, you know, like, uh, it has kind of made a, uh, you know, the basis for sort of a world that I explore. So you got like a shared universe going then? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's, you know, you don't have to know this and you could read each book separately and it wouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's just fun. It's just kind of fun for me to kind of tie these things together. It just feels like a richer kind of world that I write about when I know these little connections. Yeah, yeah, I know I know the feeling. Yeah, I've uh, doing that with... Uh, Excelsior and from parts unknown there's like one tiny little thread but it brings them together in, in its own in its own way so i i know what you mean about that so out of those you know those earlier times that one book that you were really really you know thrilled with that was able to you know get you the sort of kind of success that you you know were hoping for 
you know, it, it probably wasn't a book. It was probably a short story. Yeah. Probably one I wrote before the Harmony Society because it was my first professional sale. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, back when Zebra Books still existed and was still publishing horror back in the 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. they uh, decided to do an anthology called, called Youngblood. And the, the, the conceit of it was that all the stories in it had to be written before the author was 30. Oh. And yeah, and so this is how they managed to sneak in stories by like uh, Stephen King and Edgar Allan Poe, just a yeah. few names. Because the story's all written before they were 30. But everybody else was new. And I saw that, and I was already starting to learn enough about marketing that I was like, uh, okay, this means that uh, the competition is going to be, I won't have to worry about a lot of professional writers. They're too old to, uh, to submit to this. Because right. the vast majority had to be new stories written by people under 30. Yeah. So, you know, I wrote this story, um, and I'd seen um, uh, an actual, you know, live Punch and Judy show at a fair mm-hmm. once. Uh, not too long before this. And I thought, oh, this is cool. I'll kind of use this as a, as a, you know, a, a kind of a theme or a motif for the story. And I sat down to write it and it was the first of the kind of weird, surreal stuff that I, I often write now. And I got to a point in it that I realized how good it was. And I froze because I was like, I don't know if I can bring this to conclusion in a, in a way that will keep it this yeah. good. I walked away from it and I don't know how long it was. It wasn't super long, but I came back to it and I finished it. Yeah. Uh, I sent it yeah. to a friend of mine that I exchanged stories with. I read it to my writer's group and they all hated my ending. <laughs> they all hated this surreal kind of ambiguous, weird ending, yeah. symbolic ending. And I'm like, I tried to rewrite it based on their comments. And I was like, no, there's no way. This is for whatever reasons I can tell instinctively, this is the best ending. So I sent it to Youngblood and it got published. And it was my first you know, professional sale and that's what allowed me to join like uh, uh, the science fiction writers uh, of America and the Horror Writers Association as an affiliate member. Mm-hmm. And back then in the days before social media, when um, people were just starting to get connected on message boards and things, that allowed me to go ahead and get into the private areas that um, uh, some of these, these uh, networks or kind of proto social media sites, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where only the professional writers had you know, in contact with each other. Oh, wow. So that allowed me to start kind of getting, you know, some mentor, just reading what they would say, you know, getting into conversations with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, there weren't a lot of places to be. People didn't have websites or anything. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. people like George R. R. Martin were, was there, all kinds of wow. people. It just, you know, just mingling together uh, without any kind of, since this whole environment was new, there wasn't any kind of like hierarchy or anything really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a great, you know, that thing alone, even though, you know, it didn't, um, I mean, it kind of put me on the map a bit, but mostly it led to some other cool things. Uh, what was really weird is that a few years later, I was uh, doing a little writer's workshop at a con with, um, with Gary Bronbeck and then uh, uh, Charles Coleman Finley, who's the editor of FNSF now. And we were just answering questions for people in the, in the, in the group. And one of them asked us, you know, when did you know, when did you know that you'd moved from you know, just writing stories to writing something professional. And we all told the same story. It was all a short story we were writing. We all realized how good it was. We all froze and kind of panicked. <laughs> we all stopped for a while, and then we all went back to yeah. it. Uh, we were surprised. I don't know how common that is for, for writers, but it sure was common for us. So, you know, if any of you out there listening, you know, that happens to you, just don't stop. Yeah. <laughs> go back Go back to your story. So what – So. What is, what is it about the horror genre that, you know, that 
you gravitate towards? Like, as I mean, from what I've seen, there's been a whole lot of work that you've put out there that's really, really connected with the horror crowd. Um, like, how many Bram Stoker Awards have you won now? Uh, I've won one, but I've been nominated for three others, I think. I've been a finalist for three others. Yeah. All right. So what, so what is it about that genre that, that uh, makes you keep coming back for more? It's hard to say, you know, from a very young age, uh, I was fascinated with, with all kind of things related to horror. Um, I, I remember when I learned about dinosaurs, I was fascinated with the idea that these, these things, they walked exactly where I was just in a different yeah. time. It was almost like they were ghosts mm-hmm. because you could, you know, I would imagine their presence being there. Um, and then, um, when I was like four, maybe my, my parents, they, let me watch whatever. I mean, back in those days on TV, because you know, we're talking like maybe 1968, it wasn't like super violent or anything, but they let me watch, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman on TV. And I was fascinated that these two monsters actually lived in the same world and could, could connect each other. Yeah. Um, and just, I loved everything uh, about horror. I would read horror comics as I got older, you know, mm-hmm. famous monsters of Filmline magazine. Um, yeah. There's just, there was just something about uh, that, that sparked my imagination when it comes to horror that, that other things just for whatever reasons don't. I mean, I love fantasy. I love science fiction. I love all kinds of stuff, but right. it's just something about horror. You know, I tell people that the, the, the dark is like a wonderful blank canvas in a lot of ways, because there's so much room for you to imagine what's in there that there, there's just more room, I think, in a lot of ways, psychologically. Uh, and the same is true for other genres. I mean, as long as it's just the dark, like it could be the, you know, the, the forbidden forest in a fantasy novel, but you don't know what's in there. And so your imagination can just, you know, fill in those kind of blanks in a way that if it's straightforward fiction, it can't, you know, yeah. you're just, it's, it just seems less participatory in a lot of ways. And I'll, yeah, I, I never thought of it like that. It's almost, yeah, just like how there's the white page that, you know, we're all familiar with as, as writers that we, you know, we know needs to be filled, but if it's a black page and you know just like the color of night and everything just getting to like it's almost like kind of diving into that and then just seeing it expand like uh like a movie screen almost right Uh, right so and since uh speaking of movie screens that you know like that will you know lead us to you know something i was really excited about when i heard that you were writing this how did you get involved in movie tie-ins yeah, you know, I the I went through this the same process you did of really being interested in, in the novelizations of movies. Yeah, um, you know, especially you know back when I was younger, there was there were no VCRs yet even. Right. Um, and there's certainly you know the only way to no cable, the only way to see a movie was if it happened to be on broadcast TV, and you'd have to wait the next time right. they would show it, maybe a year or so. Mm-hmm. And so the only way to kind of relive no video games yet really so the only way to relive you know the movie was to read the novelization and i would be fascinated by the extra scenes that were in there and especially oh, okay. by whenever the author would let us know what the the characters were thinking and feeling mm-hmm. just something that you didn't get it was a whole different experience yeah i remember uh, um in 2005 i remember getting the hardcover of star wars episode three by matthew stover mm-hmm. and just you know just absorbing this thing like while i was uh, like while I was going back and forth from New York to St. Louis to, you know, to visit my then girlfriend, now wife. Um, and just thinking to myself, like, man, if the movie is going to be half as good as this, then I'm going to have a great time. And it turns out I was right. I had a great time and it was half as good as the book. <laughs> 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 
just oh there was so much more you know like so much more meat to that story that was in those that was in those pages and so there was like a handful of times that i had done that that i had read the novelization first and then saw the movie second i remember doing that with batman forever that uh the novelization that peter david did which i thought was terrific it actually like reads like it can follow the batman and batman returns lineage much mm -hmm. more um what um what what did you prefer when you were reading those did you prefer reading the book first and then seeing the movie second or the other way around um i think it was usually the i think usually i saw the movie first yeah from what i remember and there may have been a few times where i had uh, i had done it the other way around mm -hmm. and you know in a, in a way i like the experience of seeing the movie so I don't know what's going to happen, but then I like the experience of having it be, um, you know, unfolding mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like greater detail. Yeah, uh, I remember there was um, back when the in the seventies the Six Million Dollar Man TV show about a you know cyborg superhero dude. Mm -hmm. um, he um, it was based on a, a novel that had been written before, just called Cyborg. And when I read the novel, I was mad because they had the, the, the hero only has one bionic arm and they switched the arms from the book. <laughs> and I was just like, the whole time I'm like, no, in the, in the TV series, it's on the right. So there's that weird kind of cognitive dissonance that can happen sometimes if it's yeah. really different than the, than the movie or the TV show or whatever. But I, I think it probably was, you know, the, the, the visual media first and then the, the written one. So, uh, so how did you get, you know, like, in, um, so I see like, you know, like how, you know, you started really getting into them in terms of reading them and everything. What was that first assignment like? What was that um, being able to get that? And which one well, was it? Yeah, well, the, just, I started reading media tie-ins in general. Yeah. Um, probably um, Lyson Hickman's Dragons of Autumn Twilight, mm -hmm. uh, the Dragonlance novels because those things were published like novels, just novels, as opposed to Dungeons and Dragons type tie-ins. Right. And that just led me to more of it. I started getting fascinated with the idea of, of stuff that, you know, that you have a certain set of parameters to work with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I tell people that writing me to tie-ins, it's a lot like playing chess and that you've got these pieces and these rules, but then what can you do with them? Yeah. Um, or in a lot of ways, it's like being an actor, you know, you've got a, or a director, you've got a set of circumstances in terms of a script and you have to figure out what can you do mm -hmm. to, to add to this or bring it alive. And so uh, along the way, in terms of building a writing career, I tried everything, you know, it, uh, writing all kinds of fiction, nonfiction. Uh, so I thought this might be cool to try to, to write some um, tie-in fiction. So back then, Wizards of the Coast was... Uh, I think it was TSR first and then Wizard of the Coast bought Dungeons and Dragons and everything. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I would send queries into them every once in a while whenever they'd say, oh, we're looking for authors and not much happened about it. Yeah. And then I read a, read a book called The Renegade Writer, which is, it's all about uh, nonfiction, but basically the, the premise of it is, is that all the stuff that they tell people starting out isn't the way uh, publishing really works. And mm -hmm. so the, the two authors, they, they, they said, these are the things that really works. And I was like, oh, okay. And so one of the things was it said, you know, call editors. And I'm like, oh my God, you're not supposed to call editors. But I had sent in a, the, another sample chapter and, you know, letter to Wizards of the Coast and not heard anything. So I yeah. called and they, they apologized profusely for not getting back to me. They transferred wow. me to an editor and he starts talking to me about, I mean, it helped that I'd already had some stuff published, but he started yeah. talking to me about a project that they, uh, like a young adult Dragonlance is what they were thinking of doing 
because Harry Potter had just come out and been popular. And I got out the contract to do two books in it. I actually got to create the whole thing because they hadn't even started it. And um, so, you know, I just fell into it that way. And once you start doing it, it's easier to approach editors and say, you know, I've done, you or your agent, you can approach editors and say, I've done this kind of project for this tie-in property. Can I do another one? Yeah. And um, in some, and then eventually, if you've worked with an editor, they may come to you. Um, and, and that's how I got the, the first actual movie novelization. I had done uh, several supernatural novels for uh, um, uh, Titan books. Mm -hmm. And the, they also do novelizations and they just asked me to do one. Uh, I think the, the very first movie novelization I did was for the last Resident Evil movie. Oh, wow. The uh, final chapter? Yep. Yep. Wow. And uh, yeah, I got the script and I was like, because I'd seen all the movies. I owned all the movies. Yeah. And I got the script and I was, because the, the fourth movie, I think it's the fourth, uh, second to last, it ends on this giant cliffhanger. And yeah. then the script yeah. starts for the fifth one and it's all over with and they don't tell you how it happened. And some of the, all the important characters, except the main one <laughs> from the fourth movie are gone. And I was like, oh my God, the fans are going to hate this. <laughs> and so I actually wrote like uh, um, an interstitial adventure, like 60 pages to tie together the two. Wow. the two movies and I tied together all the other book series because I read them too yeah and they let me everything that I added to that they let me keep so I had it was great uh, you know I didn't change their story but I added all kinds of stuff to it to try to make it better right and uh, I and, and when you get the script there are things that they'll change one of the things I've learned from the I've done four movie novelizations the last of which is secret I can't tell you oh you would all know about it now, except the movie, but thanks to COVID, got moved back by a year. Movie's not coming out till October of next year, so if you want to guess which one it is, you can, but I can't tell you. I'm dying to tell everybody. I was super thrilled to write it, but, but what, I've, what I've learned when I get these scripts is that, you know, people will watch movies like this, you know, action-adventure ones or whatever, and they'll complain that there's not any character development. There's a ton of character development in these scripts. It's what they leave out mm -hmm. <laughs> when, they, when they have to keep the, the movie short. Yeah. It's not like the writers don't write this stuff. All of them, all the scripts I've ever seen. And for one movie I've seen, I saw two different scripts in the actual cut of the finished film before I wrote it. Oh. Um, I know, I know at least for those movies, I don't, I haven't, I haven't seen the film for the, the fourth one I've done yet since it won't come out till next year, but right. um, they all have character stuff in it that would make the movies so much richer, but they'd probably be a lot longer. Right. Um, but yeah, so that was the that was the first one. The second one I did was for um, uh, Triple X: The Return of Xander Cage. It was a nice. action nice. adventure yep. movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one I added stuff to, and they made me cut it all out because it's always different whoever you work with. Right. And they also made me cut out any thoughts that the main character had because they said he was a man of action; he never thinks. And I'm like, <laughs> he's he's thinking about doing the action. Doesn't that count? But okay. <laughs> And uh, right. yeah, then I did Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Nice. And, nice. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. One of the great yeah. things about these is that you get a chance to write stuff you might not even think of otherwise. So I got a chance to write a spy novel, yeah. which is a lot of fun. But that was, there's, that was weird because they sent the editor I was working with and me two different scripts and we didn't know it. Oh. Uh, so I wrote the book and she's like, oh my God, this is the script you need. I rewrote the book. Mm -hmm. And then th this never, ever happens with novelizations ever. Yeah, but the but the director of the movie's like he needs to come out here and see the movie to make sure everything in the movie's in the book. So they flew me out to Hollywood. I got to go onto the uh, the Fox set on a Friday afternoon. It was completely deserted, 
and sit in this little screening room. And I wasn't allowed to take my computer, so I had to write notes by hand. And they stopped the movie. I'd literally write down everything. So they stopped the movie every few minutes so I could write down the dialogue <laughs> and everything that happened. It took six hours to watch this movie. I'd had probably three hours of sleep before getting on the plane. I was so exhausted. So they didn't give you like, they, they didn't like, hand you like the script or something and just say like, if it's different, change it? No, they didn't, they didn't hand me the shooting script. So, or whatever the final script was, I had to see it. So then when I got home, I was like, now what do I do? And I said, well, cause the, the, all three versions were similar, but also had a lot of differences to them. And I was like, the hell with it. I'm going to be, I'm going to make the book out of all the parts I like out of three, these three versions. Nice. <laughs> and that's what I did. And they were fine with it. So that was cool. Yeah. And then the last one I did worked great. I mean, it was a, a you know, it was a property I was thrilled to work with. Um, didn't have any trouble with and them wanting me to do anything different to it at all. Uh, right. They really liked the stuff I added. So um, I'm looking forward to probably a year from now when people finally get to read it. I'm looking forward to seeing what they think. So, um, so um, how do you prefer to do it? You know, because like, I know that, um, you know, when you, when you're given a script, you can really just kind of like let your imagination fly. Do you feel like watching the, watching the final movie kind of like, you know, handcuffs you in some way? Yeah, that's a good question in some ways, because especially for that one, since I'd already been through a couple versions of a book, mm -hmm. you know, a, a lot of times the, depending on the script, at least for the action sequences, sometimes they're spelled out in step-by-step yeah. -step detail. Other times they're not. And, you know, you, you have to picture how it goes. So, mm -hmm. so much gets put onto the internet. There's all kinds of production stills and whatever that I would look for as much of that as I could get to see, you know, mm -hmm. okay, is, is the character still in this position during the action scene or are they having her do something different? So as much as I can get it that way, but I've already got it kind of imagined in my head. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, oh, this looks very different. Yeah. And, uh, and that was okay. It was a little jarring. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think that I prefer just to work with the script. Uh, mm -hmm. but I, it's fine. I mean, if, if, if I ever again, get lucky enough to, to have somebody show me a cut of the movie, cause like I said, it's, that's the kind of thing that everybody always asks when you do movie novelizations. Did you get to see the movie early? And the answer is always no, they never, ever let you see the movie early. Yeah. Um, but in this case, a director wanted it. So I got to do it. That's great. Yeah. Um, and, um, I would definitely be remiss if I didn't mention this. So, uh, one of my, uh, one of my, uh, friends, fellow author, and who is actually a guest on the show, Jennifer Stolzer. Um, she randomly, like, you know, hands me this uh, this book of that little, you know, like um, little tie-in book that has uh, all these different stories for Transformers. And I look in there and I see your name in there. I was like, this is this is awesome. <laughs> so, how did how did you get involved with Transformers with that? You know, that's that's a really cool. That's, a, that's an interesting little notch right there. Yeah, at, at that point, I'd worked with that editor before. And so they just said, are you interested in doing a Transformers story? And I was just a little too old for Transformers to be like a thing for me, but right. not for my brother. My brother loved them. And, you know, he had all the toys and stuff. So I was super familiar with Transformers and, you know, watched mm -hmm. the cartoons and everything. And whenever I do a, a story for an anthology like that, I try to think of what's an area nobody else is going to explore. Yeah, and they had these these uh, uh, I forget the name of the robot, but I mean they live on a junk planet. Junkions, you know, yeah, yeah, the junkions. And so I was like, why the hell is there even a planet like that? What what do they do? <laughs> so I came up with a reason for you know why they're there, what they're really doing. 
And I had a lot of fun writing that character because the, the main character, he speaks in like weird kind of like slogans that you might've heard. Yeah. Yeah. And so some of that stuff I had to cut out because they're like, no, these are like copyrighted slogans. Like I I put in, put in ready to rumble from wrestling at one point. They're like, no, you can't do that. (laughs) He was, he was a lot of fun to write. That was a good story. Oh, and I got to make up my own uh, bad ones. I made up the, uh, what the hell were they? I can't remember. They might've been recyclotrons or something. I don't know. I got to make up some bad guys that for the reason who would come to a junk planet want to do something to it. Right. Right. Oh, that's great. So, uh, so what, um, what advice do you have for, you know, um, for a writer these days? Cause nowadays, like the publishing, the publishing field is so vastly different than what it was back when, when you were starting now, um, the big thing is indie publishing and there are small presses and there are so many more opportunities for so many people to get involved. But at the same time, that also leaves, leaves, leaves it open for the market to be really saturated. Um, what, would you, what would you advise uh, an up and coming author to do to not only get themselves published, but then to get themselves to stand out? That's a great question. Um, I would say try to, 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 to write what you're passionate about and then write something that only you could write. So, you know, if, if you like to write romance, don't write romance novels that are the same as everybody else's. You like to write horror, don't write horror that's the same as everybody else's. Yeah. Uh, and that, that process can be really hard. It took me a long time to figure out uh, what sort of, of fiction is like, you know, a Tim Wagner story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can change over the course of your life too. But, you know, finding something like that, that you have to offer that nobody else has to offer. Cause otherwise it's almost impossible to, to stand out with, with so many different, you know, writers out there. Um, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to start out now and, you know, have anybody to, 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 to get them to pay attention to your work. Yeah. It's no wonder that on social media, a lot of people adopt kind of very extreme sort of personalities in one way or another, mm-hmm. um, just so that that draws attention. And then maybe that attention will go to your work. Um, but I, I think the more that you could find, you know, something that a niche for you, that is your yeah. niche. Um, it could be looking to see what's just not there. Um, I think a lot of times the people that we see get successful, it's because of luck. You know, they're doing the kind of thing that suddenly people get interested in for some reason. Yeah. Um, something about it does that, but you can try to maximize that as best you can. You can try different things too and see what happens mm-hmm. as well. Um, you know, making sure that you're the very best writer you can be and continuing to hone your craft. Uh, you know, especially with so many people self-publishing and rushing to do it. So yeah. it's like I, I, the idea that I might have started now, I would have liked that first novel I finished in 19. I'd have uploaded that damn thing within 10 minutes of finishing it. It would have been on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I would have been so excited. It never would have, you know, I wouldn't even occurred to me that I have to work with it more and more because I just wanted it so badly. Right. And, you know, then I, what, if I could go ahead and, and get those things published that way immediately, what incentive would I have to get better? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people all the time say, oh, you'll want to get better just because you want to get better. And I'm like, really? Have you met human beings? <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs> you know, once we get our desires met, I'm not sure. I mean, some might, they were so dedicated to just growing as an artist. Mm-hmm. But I think most of us, if we get some decent feedback on our early stuff, we stay that way. Yeah. Um, so, I, but I, I think the 
continuing to push yourself to become the very best writer that you could be. Um, so those are the things I think I'd, I'd advise anybody. Mm -hmm. Trying to, to, to find a way to stand out, create your own brand, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And where can, uh, where can our listeners find you on social media? Oh, I'm everywhere. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, like I said earlier, my website is just timwagner.com and I have like, you know, links to everything there. Yeah. You can find links to my social media. You can sign up for my newsletter. I got a YouTube channel where I do videos. You can find me there. Excellent. Excellent. I hope that all of you have been able to take everything that Tim has been saying to heart. And really the most important thing is what he had said right near the very beginning of all of this. He started this journey, this Excelsior journey that he is on because he had to. And that is what it, this is all about. It's like what Paul Schrader said uh, years back. The only reason why people get into the arts is because they have no choice. And that is, that is what, what it's all about. It's all about feeling that urge and embracing it and knowing that this is why you are here. This is why you are on this journey that you're on. I hope that all of you are able to take all of this advice to heart. I hope that all of you are on the journey that you're on because you have to, and not because you feel it's something that you're supposed to do. It's gotta be something that you have to do, that you have to do, that you're telling yourself that you have to do. And so I hope that you're all doing that for those very reasons. I wish nothing but success to all of you. And for Tim Wagoner, this is George Sorori saying to all of you, ever upward, and I will see you next week. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today.